Ay. Ay. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be using them a lot tonight. You'll need to be in two different books. We're going to, uh, we're going to continue the story of Jonah, and then we're going to walk through a couple passages in Romans. I don't know who decided to be the sound effects for the bumblebee. But <laughs> okay. Uh, this was a trap. You're all going home. That was a completely inappropriate. This is the word of God up here, friends. Actually, that was hilarious. I was losing it in the sound booth. Um, it was good times. All right. So uh, we are in the book of Jonah today. I want to kind of continue with the commitment that we made on night one, and that is that tonight uh, I'm going to share with you the gospel message, okay? So the gospel message, right, we, sometimes it's kind of uh, reimagined in pop culture. We use it for different things. Sometimes people use it to mean they really mean something like, oh, gospel, you know? But the gospel really, it comes from this idea of the good news. And the good news is, and this is like, it's literally the, the, the most powerful, incredible story ever told. And it's the story of how we as people, every human who's ever lived, have fallen short of God's glory. How every human has ever lived has deserved, outside of Jesus, has deserved eternal death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That God has created, specifically for Satan and demons, a place called hell for them to be punished for their rebellion against God. Okay? So hell, isn't, hell wasn't created for people. It was created as a way to punish the rebellion of Satan who turned away from God, just like we saw it with Jonah, and said, I want nothing to do with you. I want my own worship. And so as a response to that, because you got you to remember this, sometimes we can think, especially in modern culture, like the idea of hell is pretty egregious to us, right? We think to ourselves, how could God punish someone eternally if all they did was sin for 70 or 80 years? How is that fair? But we got to remember, the way that people experience punishment, the way that sentencing goes, there's a lot of factors to it. One of those factors is the perfection of the person that we're sinning against. Another one is the authority of the person that we're sinning against. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you guys have siblings in here? Okay, good. How many of you guys have ever hit your siblings before? Right? You're still here. You're not in prison. You're not, none of you got the death sentence, Right? Uh, I've got, again, I've got five kids. They hit each other every day. I don't like it. I don't want them to. But when they hit each other, you're kind of like, all right, Leo. It's normally Leo. Um, uh, yeah, you guys want to see a picture, our Christmas card this year? I want to show it to you. All right. Can you sh- throw our Christmas card up there? There we are. <laughs> look, hey, look, I didn't choose the thug life, okay? <laughs> thug life chose me. So one thing, one thing about losing your spouse is your system of checks and balances and what's a good idea goes out the window, and so you just get to make decisions how you want to. So this is the Christmas card I wanted, so I bought five, uh, six gold chains on a- Amazon, and then I found a turtleneck for everyone, and um, the fanny packs didn't show up on time or else I would have had that too, so this is my life. All right, you can put it down. That's my family right there. Anyway, so Leo, the one with his mouth open, he hits people all the time. But when he hits Brady, which Brady normally deserves it, he's the one with the glasses, uh, when he hits him, there's some level of discipline from me, right? So maybe it's a timeout, maybe it's a flick on the hand, maybe it's, you know, just um, verbal reprimand, like, you idiot, something like that, you know, like simple. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But um, because, think about it. 
Brady and Leo, they fight all the time, so there's, it's not like one's perfect and one's heinous, and, and it's not like one has great authority and the other one doesn't. They're both kids, and they're brothers, and that's just kind of what they do. Now, I want you to imagine a scenario where Leo grows up, and instead of hitting his brother, he hits his teacher, right? Everyone felt that, like, oh, yeah, that's different. <laughs> they're both humans, but what? The teacher is in a position of authority greater than Leo, the, the teacher ought to have a moralistic standard that's higher than Leo's, and so we understand appropriately that he wouldn't just get sent to time out, right? You would probably be expelled for that, and you might be facing charges. Now, let's say he does face charges, and as the police officer, officer shows up, Leo punches him. Yeah, right? <laughs> the fuzz comes in. It's not going to go well for him, right? He might be looking at jail time, assaulting a police officer, and now you can imagine if each one of those has an increasingly more severe punishment, I want you to imagine not a police officer who's in good standing, not a teacher who's in good standing. I want you to picture the God of the universe, that Leo rebels and hits and, and, and goes against the God of the universe. It's so much more infinitely authoritative. God is so much more infinitely perfect. He is so much more infinitely morally higher. That the, the, the response to that, there wouldn't be a human, there wouldn't be a temporary, there wouldn't be a way we could come up with to actually punish Leo for what he had just done. Because the, the absolute abhorish nature of you spitting in the face of the almighty perfect creator of the universe and make no mistake that's what god considers sin it's not just some little thing we do it's cosmic treason it's to look at the law of god and say i see what you have said as king but me as creature i will rebel against it i know that you, i know what you've said i know what you think is right but i will do something different and if you're up to date on your, on your medieval uh, history, what is the punishment for treason even back in the 1500s? Death. Why? Because the king's authority is so great that when you say, I see your law, but I will do my own thing, you can be punished by, by, by being executed. And how much higher is the king of kings and the lord of lords above any earthly king, any earthly kingdom? If a king is good, then God is infinitely better. If a king is moral, then God is infinitely more moral. If a king is powerful, God is infinitely more powerful. And so the response to treason on a cosmic level would never be something that could be perceived by us. It would never be temporary. It would never be without some egregious, really offensive way of responding. And that's what hell is. But it was never created for people. But when we rebelled against God, we now have chosen those who have rebelled against God, which is all people, to follow Satan and his demons into the very place that was meant to be the punishment for those who rebelled against God. It's not that God sends people to hell. It's that God invites people to heaven and we reject it. Make no mistake. When people, we see people even in scripture that, that spend eternity in hell, they don't want out. 
Because the only reason that we as people would ever repent of our sins and want more of God is because the Holy Spirit is present and active and moving in our hearts. And if God is absent from hell, they will never, even in that moment, go, I wish I was with God. Ultimately, hell is just God's response to people saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. And God says, your wish is my command and it will be forever. What we don't realize is every good and perfect gift that we experience in life is from God. And we couldn't even imagine a place absent of God because God is everywhere. So we borrow all these good common graces from the world. Joy, friendship, love, peace, food, satisfaction of hunger, satisfaction of thirst. Those are all God-given gifts. And hell is a place where God is absent. So everything we experience on planet Earth that brings us joy, peace, comfort, all of those things are absent. And we go, well, how could a God send? He doesn't send people there. They want to go. Because they don't want anything to do with God. Because those who say, God, I want everything to do with you, God responds by saying, welcome in to my rest. And so I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. And I told you I wouldn't all weekend. We don't like that word, right? We kind of, we, we find cute ways of talking around it in churches sometimes. Or like televangelists, when they talk about it, they're like, well, you, you can go to heaven or you can go to the other place. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's something that's not made clear to us about what that looks like, but God makes it very clear about what rebellion is going to cost. It's his authority, it's his perfection, and make no mistake, we've spit in the face of the God of the universe. We've, we've committed treason against him on a cosmic scale. That's what sin is. And that's the sin that I'm guilty of. And so we asked that question on the very first night when Jack stood in the back of the room and I stood up here. Jack, where are you? Jack, can you go stand in the back of the room again? Yeah, no, he just, he literally, he's literally just going to walk. You know, I mean, clap. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, he's walking. Good job, Jack. He hasn't even fallen. Look at this guy. Um, we asked the question the first night, what, what's to be done about this gap? What's to be done about the gap between the wretchedness that we ought to understand now as people, is who we are, and that the guest list for heaven is filled with only perfect people, and there's only one name in the history of mankind that, that fits the bill, and it's Jesus. So if I'm wretched and incapable of getting any closer to that on my own, and every attempt to do so is bathed in pride and sin and ego, then how in the world am I going to get there if that's the place where I need to be to enter into God's kingdom forever, to enter into heaven, if I can't get there? Tonight we're going to share the good news. The good news is the gospel. It's the solution to the issue of the sin problem in your heart. Don't, don't think corporately. Don't think y'all's heart, right? God is big enough that he doesn't associate with us as mankind as a group. He's like, well, everyone born in 88, you're right here. Everyone born in 97, everyone born in 2002. No, he knows you individually. It says that he, he has counted the hairs in your head and knows them by name. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You don't hide from him. You are not one in a mass of people. And for you to think to yourself, God couldn't possibly care about me. You've limited the power of an almighty God. And Satan wants you to believe the lie that you will, through osmosis, be in this mass of people. And God will simply look at you as a group and great on a curve, but that is completely untrue. 
Friend, I don't know if you know God, but God knows you. He knows everything about you. And in spite of all those things, and because of all those things, God sends his son to planet Earth to be murdered, a treasonous traitor's death. Not because he doesn't know you, friend, because he does know you, and he's aware of the solution to our sin problem. Let's talk about in Jonah chapter 3 today, and then we're going to jump over to the book of Romans. Jonah chapter 3. Here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We saw it in the skit today. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it and proclaim the message I give you. Jonah then, this time is different, right? Jonah now obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and then started shouting, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, right? Not a lot of love there, not a lot of kindness there, but simply a call. And it's a, it's a powerful call that Jonah is calling into. He's using this terminology of what we call repentance. Repentance means y'all need to turn around. That's what repentance means, right? The first word that Jesus says in his public ministry, repent. The first word that John the Baptist says in his public ministry, repent. The first word on Pentecost, which is 50 days after Jesus goes back into heaven after being resurrected, Peter stands in front of thousands of people on the southern steps of the temple, and everyone's staring at him because everyone wants to know what in the heck just happened. You see, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, Jesus was buried in Jerusalem, and then Jesus rose again from the dead in Jerusalem. Now, this isn't a fairy tale. Three out of four historians believe in that there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem that started the uproar that you and I now know as the Christian church. 51% of scientists are theists. Three out of four historians believe in an empty tomb, and, and of those, they believe that there's credible reason to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened even through minimalist facts. You may not care about this. I'm an apologist. I really do, okay? But this isn't some myth. It's not some fairy tale. You still have to give an answer to the empty tomb in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he died. In Jerusalem, he was buried. In Jerusalem, he rose up again from the dead. And so guess what everyone's doing? 3,000 people. Josephus writes about this. Tacitus writes about this. Irenaeus writes about this. The thousands of people gathered right after the resurrection, and they stood, and they recognized Peter, James, John, the disciples, and they went, tell us what the heck is going on. So Peter, who is this coward who runs away, who's terrified, who curses at a little girl because she says, that guy's with Jesus. Peter's like, I'm not with Jesus. Stop saying that. He, like, he literally swears at a little girl. But then he sees a resurrected Jesus, and 50 days later, he stands in the southern steps of the temple, and everyone gathers around and goes, we're freaked out, man, and we know you know him. What just happened? And Peter says, repent. And they're like, repent? Repent of what? And here's Peter's sermon. God sent his son to planet Earth to live a perfect life because y'all couldn't do it. It was too big a price for you to pay. But Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. And you know what y'all did? Y'all murdered him. I murdered him because we didn't get it. We didn't understand we were sick of him convicting us. We were sick of what he was saying. We didn't understand. When he claimed to be God, we, we thought there's no way this guy's actually God. We, we, we were freaked out by him. So we killed him. Jesus taught this whole ministry. He said, I'm going to prove to you that I'm God because three days after you kill me, 
against every odd and against every bit of science and naturalism, I'm going to walk out of that grave. But we crucified him anyway. And friends, three days later, he walked out of the tomb. And that's why I, Peter, am so bold in telling you this. Peter is going to later be crucified upside down for preaching this message. The other disciples are all going to be killed for what they're talking about, except for John, who's exiled on Patmos all by himself. It's over and over and over again. This message changed everything. And his message was simple. Repent. Y'all killed the God of the universe. I would apologize if I were you. And then follow him. Repent and be baptized, he said, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you've killed. And 3,000 people, because they had seen him and they were curious and confounded and they just wanted to know what to do, Peter says, turn away from your old way of living, get baptized and follow him. And the message tonight isn't any different. My name's not Peter. I'm speaking English, not Koine Greek. But it's, the message has never changed. And if you ever meet someone who gives you a different gospel, run the heck the other direction because the gospel's never going to need to be changed. The good news of the gospel does not need help. It doesn't need to be syncretized or changed or manufactured for modern culture. It doesn't need assistance. And so tonight I'm just going to tell you the same gospel that he told thousands of years ago. And I'm going to ask you to give an adult response. Because after you die, your soul lives on. And the question is, what, what's going to become of you? I want you to at least not walk out of here and go, I, I've never heard this before. You're going to be given accountability tonight. You're going to know the truth. Now, you can reject the truth, but you can no longer walk away and say, oh, I, I never heard that. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells them to repent. And guess what they do? They do it. The Ninevites believed God, verse 5. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That was a way of saying, I'm sorry. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Again, showing humility. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with his compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And in case you're curious because you've had this lie told to you or you've told it to yourself. That as I'm talking right now, you think to yourself, but Chris, you don't know what I've done, right? I get that this gospel is for those who've minorly rebelled against God, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've been with. You don't know the things that I've chosen to become. You don't know the ways that I've rejected God. You don't know ways I've treated people. You don't know my addictions. You don't know my pains. You don't know my past. You don't know the abuse that I've endured, and you don't know the abuse that I've caused. And in doing so, we have again committed blasphemy because here's what you just said to me. I understand the infinite power of God, but my sin is greater than his. My sin, the power of my sin is greater than the power of his grace. Friend, no way. Come on. Every second, every second of the day, the sun, the power from the sun is able to, if it was perfectly captured by earth, give energy to every light bulb and every electrical system on the planet for 125,000 years. Every second, the, 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 the sun can do that. If you pedaled your hardest for 35 minutes, you could light a light bulb for like 13 seconds. 
I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to tell you, if your response to this message is, I don't think God could save a sinner like me, I'm not trying to be rude. You're just not that powerful. And your sin in the presence of a perfectly forgiving, just, powerful, loving God, to think that you've outsinned it. Do you know who the Ninevites were? The Ninevites were people who, when they would go to battle, they would bring their enemies home, they would skin them, they would put their heads on stakes on the outside, and then they would throw their dead skin over the city walls just as a way of celebrating with their people about what they had just done. These are the Ninevites. You cannot outsend the power of the cross. You just can't. And so Jonah calls them to repent, and that's my call to you tonight. I'm not Jonah, I didn't get swallowed by a fish, but in some ways, God calls us to preach the gospel, and I want to do that for you tonight, and here's what we're going to do. I want you to just pretend with me that chapel just ended, and I forgot to explain to you the gospel, right? That was a bummer. That's a, that's a big failure as a teacher, right? They'd be like, well, this, this guy sucks. Um, but then you caught me outside, and you're like, Chris, 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 hey, 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 you forgot to talk about the gospel, and so here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you catch me outside, and we, we go, no, <laughs> catch me outside. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Everyone's like, how about that? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Linda, listen, Linda. Okay, but you catch me, you, know, you don't catch me outside. You see me outside, <laughs> and you're like, hey, I, I'm, I want to know. I want to walk through it. I don't want to tell it to you. I want you to see it for yourself. So here's what I'd, I'd like you to do. I know I'm not trying to like engage cheap crowd participation. I want you to see this for yourself though because in about seven minutes time, I'm going to ask you to respond to what I'm talking about as an adult to either say, no, I don't want any part of this or to say, yes, I surrender my life to Jesus. That's, that's, I'm going to ask you to do that in 10 minutes. I want you to be well informed when we get there. I don't want you to do anything on emotion. I don't want you to go, <laughs> if the old sin just feels like I want to. No, I, just, I want you to get it. I want you to think. I want you to process. I want you to make a decision for yourself. It's not your mom's decision. It's not your dad's decision. It's not your grandma's decision. It's it, that, like, I can't make a decision for you. I can't baptize you against your will. I can't be here with a hose like, you're all saved, right? Or I would, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't work that way. Your parents' faith won't save you. It doesn't cover you. Like, it, you, it's, it's you, you're like 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. It's up to you, okay? I'm going to give you the facts. I'm going to give you the expectations, and I'm going to ask you to respond, okay? So I want you to walk with me. The, the book is called Romans. It's towards the back of your Bibles. I'm going to walk through just five different passages. It's all in the book of Romans. It's just, just based on the numbers that I'm going to tell you. When I say chapter, that's the big number. When I say verse, it's the small number afterwards. If you have any trouble, ask someone next to you. Um, if you see someone around you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've given your life to him, you see someone around you with a Bible, give them your Bible, walk them through it with you, okay? This is the book of Romans, okay? Written by a guy named Paul. Time Magazine said he's the second most influential man who's ever lived. He wrote this book. We have thousands of copies of it. He saw Jesus after his resurrection, okay? 
Paul was a Pharisee. He was awful. He murdered Christians for a living. Jesus came to him, changed his whole life. And we have a historical record from Josephus and these other historians that knew Paul and said, that guy's whole life changed. Now, you have to give an account for that if you don't believe in the resurrection. But what Paul, the reason that Paul gives is he says, I saw the dead Jesus living again. It freaked me out so much that it blinded me. And then the reason that you and I are sitting here today are because of Paul's missionary journeys, because he saw Jesus Christ. These are historical facts. This isn't my opinion. This isn't biblical fairy taleism. These are historical facts. You've got to give a reason if you don't believe in Jesus on how this happened, but you have to deal with the, the, the facts, okay? Romans chapter 1. This would be the beginning. You go, Chris, tell me, what is the gospel? I would say it starts with this very simple thing. It, the simple way that the gospel begins is like this. Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 19, says this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, verse 21, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that's, it's kind of a, Paul's, uh, he, Paul's an intellectual, right? So when he writes, sometimes it's like, like what do you mean? <laughs> what are you saying? That was a lot of words, right? And you, you all ever read a chapter book and then you finish a chapter, you're like, what in the world did I just read? And then you end up doing a book report on something that's completely trash because you went to SparkNotes and have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you all did. Okay, so... Here's what Paul's saying. Let me put it in simple language. Paul is saying there's no such thing as atheists. There are people who have seen the glory of God and rejected it, and they've used the excuse of unbelief as a, as a way of thwarting the power of God, but no one's actually an atheist. And he says, he gives an example. He's like, it, it's God's invisible qualities and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made, so that man is without excuse. And you think, what does that mean? Okay. So we're sitting outside, you're, we're having this conversation one-on-one. -on -one. You're drinking your coffee, I'm drinking my uh, hot cocoa. I don't really like coffee. Okay, I'm drinking hot cocoa like an adult, okay, uh, with little marshmallows because I love them. Um, and as I'm doing that, I'm going, okay, so here's what Paul's saying. Imagine you and I are walking in the woods and we stumble upon this building, right? We've been walking in the woods, it's been, it's kind of a... Uh, wild and waste out, and then we find this chapel, and we walk inside, and we're kind of like brushing off our feet, and I ask you, what do you think built this building? And you were like, I don't know, probably some people, and I was like, no, 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 friend, that's not my question. I said, what built this building? And you would go, what do you mean? And I go, well, here's my theory. My theory is that one day there was this violent wind, and it started toppling trees. And then this beaver who was in on it started cutting these logs, and he started like, he started breaking them down to size. But then, but then, but then there's a rock quarry nearby, and the sun, there was like this intense heat, and almost like through a magnifying glass, there was like a hole in a leaf, and it like, and so it started melting this metal. So you see the metal on the beams? I think what happened then is that metal, that beaver, who, he, he had plants, schematics, he like gets up and he starts molding it and then, oh, but the, the screen, oh, the screen, the screen, you, we might think these are like pixels, you know, like DPI or whatever, you nerds know what these are called, but like, but I think, but I think, but I think, I think these are fireflies. And all the fireflies got together and they said, you know, my life's worth a lot, but it'd be worth a lot more if we all got together. So all the fireflies came and they simultaneously arranged their rear ends in such a perfectly... 
pattern system. Right, there's a point in the middle of that where if you have a brain in your skull, you go, I'm, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and God bless you, but like I'm never going to talk to you again, you know? Why? Because it's stupid. What I just said was categorically stupid. And, and, and this is all, it's as simple as it is. These are a bunch of like wooden beams that came from the forest around here, presumably, but they're just fashioned in such a way, and, and there's electricity here, and it's just fashioned in such a way that you would never ever take anyone seriously who looked at something as simple as this in the grand scheme of the universe and said, I think this, was a, the, this came as a result of an accidental what, not a mindful who. I think this was all perchance. You see, the person looks at the human body where right now there's more electrical connections in your brain processing what I'm saying than there is in the entire county of Los Angeles combined. That right now for you to see me, you've got a thousand million kinds of cones and rods and pupil and everything working together in synchrony and then flipping the image upside down for you to perceive who I am and the colors. And all you see is actually the colors that have been rejected by this. This isn't actually red, it's everything but red, which has been rejected back to your eyeballs. And you have a perception of what red is from your cerebellum. You've got memories that you can pull up from nothing, even though if you grabbed your brain, you couldn't look inside of it. It's just a whole bunch of goo. And you are so immaculately intricate, and you're, the, the salt in your bloodstream is 3.4%, which is the exact same as the ocean. And if our universe right now was expanding at any faster rate, everything would just fall apart. And if it was expanding any slower rate, everything would collapse on itself. And we're spinning right now at 1,000 miles an hour around, while, or 23,000 miles around, while zipping through the universe at 67,000 miles. And if either of those things were off by just a factor of 1 in 10, we would all die instantly. And the sun's distance from earth and the way that the moon moves the tides and the way that everything works in perfect harmony and that we revolve around a G2 red dwarf star instead of a supernova. There's all these factors, hundreds of thousands of different factors that all allow you to see me, perceive me the way that you do right now. In such a way that it makes a screen like that that we go complicated. It, it, looks, it looks like child's play. Compared to your brain, that's child's play. How in the world could you look at that and demand a who answer and look at your own self and go, I'm a really intense accident. This is what Paul says. Paul simply says, you can't look at the universe and not come to the conclusion of a creator. Period. Unless you are biased against it and you want there to be no God. That's what Paul says, Romans chapter 1. It's the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is God exists, okay? But the news is going to get worse before it gets better. Flip to the right, one page for most of you, Romans chapter 3. So what? So there's a God. Now what? Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. We talked about this verse last night. There is, this is what God says. As it is written, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Everyone there? Good. It's quoting from the Old Testament where God's speaking and he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Righteous means right with God. And when it says right with God, it means that, that there is no, um, the, the same word from Genesis, enmity. There's no war. So what, what Paul is saying here is he's saying everyone it, it, they're not just a little bit off, they're at war with God. Man in their natural state, woman in their natural state is at war with God. Romans 
we, that we, there is no one right with God, not even one. No one even seeks God on their own. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you might go, well, I think I'm a pretty good person, but God's definition of good is not that you're better than the person next to you or that your mom thinks you're great or that your coach thinks that you're a good basketball player, right? The word good is pretty complicated, right? If you were through a snowball at my grandma from 100 yards away, you would have a good aim without being a good person, right? <laughs> was that a good throw? Yeah. But was it a good throw? No. But it was a good throw. Yeah. But was that throw good? No. It was a bad throw. But I mean, a good throw. You see how complicated it is? Let me simplify it for you. When the Bible uses the word good, when it talks about morality, it means perfect. Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was good. He wasn't going, yeah, sufficient, <laughs> right? In, in the book of Mark, I believe it's chapter 9, God is talk, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler says, good teacher. And Jesus says, what, did you just call me good? He wasn't saying that the, the rich young ruler was saying, hey, you're kind of a nice teacher. You know what Jesus' response is? He says, no one is good but God alone. What's he saying? He's saying perfect. No one is perfect but God. Are you saying that you think I'm God? And Jesus was going to tell him, you're right. I am God, is what Jesus was going to say. You see, that word means perfect. There is no one righteous. No one is good. Everyone has fallen short. You might go, well, is, is that that big of a deal? It is. It's cosmic treason. And now we ask the question, well, what is the punishment for cosmic treason? A couple pages to your right, Romans chapter 6. First thing, there is a God. Second thing, that we have sinned against him. We've committed cosmic treason. This is what that costs us. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 23. So big number 6, small number 23 says this. For the wages, okay, what's a wage? Any of you guys have a job? How many of y'all have a job? Okay, where do you work? A wine. A wine yeah, you, you know what? How dare you? All right? Alcoholism is a sin. How old are you? Absolutely not. What do you do at the winery? They have an ice rink at the winery? Sounds like a fun center for adults. I mean, no. No. Gotcha. What's your name? Noah. How much do you make an hour? Excuse me? <laughs> Are you single? <laughs> okay. Uh, $15 an hour? What? You drive like a Ferrari or something? I don't think I make $15 an hour. That's okay. You probably have more kids than me. So Noah, what is... Noah, let's forget about taxes and everything else like that. If you work a 10-hour day, what is your wage for that day? $150. And he works at a winery, not at a school. <laughs> $150, okay? If you work for 10 hours at $15 an hour, you're going to earn $150. That's called your wage for the day. It's because of what you've done. You've helped people ice skate. You've taken complaints from old ladies whose uh, Merlot wasn't robust enough, right? These are, you, you do that enough, and your boss has said, this is what you've earned. Here's your wage. What we do earns us things. And so almost satirically, Paul says, here's what you've earned by your sin. The wages of sin is, help me out, death. Now, do you think Paul means if you sin, that means you're going to experience death? 
No, he's a, he, he might mean that, but he means something much deeper, right? He's not talking about just physical death, right? Did, was Jesus guilty of sin? No, he died. We're all going to die. Everyone's going to die. He's talking about something deeper. He's, he's talking about eternal death. The wages of sin is eternal death. And if Jesus, John 14, 6, is the way, the truth, and the then he's saying the wages of sin is to be separated from the life for all of eternity. The earnings of your sin is hell. That's what Paul is saying right here. Here's what you've earned. You've earned separation from God forever. You've earned hell. And then the most crucial conjunction kicks in. The wages of sin is death. Help me out. What's the next word? But. That's a contradictory conjunction. But on the other hand, there's a gift here, right? But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone has a birthday today? It's not Corey's birthday. He's born in September. He's, it's not his birthday, okay? But I love that you sang it to him so many times today. Um, so whose birthday is closest to today? You? When's your birthday? Yesterday? Awesome. Did you get any presents for your birthday? You did. Do you believe you earned those presents? <laughs> right? We're not, right? It's our birthday, and we sit there, and everyone's like, hey, 16 years ago, your mom went through a really intense experience. Here's a gift card to Forever 21. <laughs> this is kind of what it's talking about. We worked, and we've earned death, but then it says God gives us a gift, almost like a birthday gift, where we just sit here and go, wait, why, why am I getting... <laughs> Why am I getting something? The actions I've done has, cost, has, has earned me hell, and now I'm sitting here and you're, you're giving me a gift? It's not a gift that I deserved. It's, it's, not, it's not pain that I went through. It's not a punishment. that I, it's not, I, I, did, I didn't do anything good. And it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Flip one page to the left, back to Romans chapter 5. Begin at verse 8. It says this. Let's begin at verse 6, actually. Romans 5, 6. I love this. Guys, the gospel's here. Here it comes. Are you ready? And you know what? Someday when you see God face to face and he, and he welcomes you into his kingdom for those who respond to this and those who follow him, there will just become a day where the satisfaction of these words will consume you in every possible way. And our minds are fickle and our hearts are fickle and, it, and it's, it's hard to get perspective on this. But I tell you what, when you lose someone that you love, like your wife, and you read passages like this and you think about the glory and you think about the power of Jesus giving himself for you so that you could have the hope of eternal life, like, this is so freaking cool. Are you ready? You see... The gospel doesn't start good. There is a God. You rejected him. It's going to cost you hell. That's what, you're gonna, that's what you deserve. But there's a free gift, and here's what it says. You see, friend, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Good meaning perfect. But God demonstrates I love this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, some of us, we claim to love people, but then we sit still. 
We sit in our chairs, and, and it, it's just a, it's a figment of our mind. We think that we love people, but it's not demonstrative. We don't do anything about it, and we don't really love people sometimes. We just claim to because it feels good to. And we claim to love everything and everyone at all times. We don't really, we don't work on its behalf. We don't push it towards spiritual growth. We don't introduce them to Jesus. We just want to say we love people because it sounds a lot better than being apathetic or hate-filled. But God demonstrated his love for you. He was demonstrable with it. He looked at you and he said, I'm not going to stop at words to let you know how much I love you. God demonstrated it. His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Philippians chapter 2, it says, Jackie, you ready to switch places? Stand up, my man. Roman, he's still there. <laughs> he's now sitting, but he's still there. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that there was a gap between who Jesus is and what Jesus has earned. Now, let's do the flip part of this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So if sin earns you death, then what do you think perfection earns you? Life. Jesus was perfect, so Jesus held his wages in his hand, which is eternal life. We held our wages in our hand over here in the wretched part of the world. We all hold in our hands our wages, which is eternal death. And Jesus, the conquering, powerful hero, steps down from heaven. In, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says this. It's so beautiful. It's a creed from the early Christian church. It's written within 10 to 15 years of Jesus resurrecting. And here's what it says. Beginning at verse 5, Roman, or Philippians chapter 2. You should all have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Jesus knew he was God. But if you and I were God, we would cling to it like you wouldn't believe, right? I'm God. You serve me. I'm God. How dare you rebel against me? I'm God. You, you sit in your sins. Shove your nose in what you've done. All of us should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, I'm going to take your spot right here. Jack, Jack, you stay here, though. You're doing a great job. Here's what Jesus did. This is the gospel. Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He looked around at his perfect kingdom. God was sitting in his glory alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit. One part of the Trinity, one being three persons. And Jesus said, I know what it takes to save the wretches. And remember, that's y'all standing over there. That's me standing over there. He knew that his godness was at his disposal. And it says... He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead it says he shed it and he made himself nothing. And he walked this path from divinity to humanity, still maintaining his godness, but being fully human. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then when he was done with that, this is Christmas, he's found in human likeness. He didn't even stop there. Being found as a human... He became obedient to the laws that he had created, including death, but not just any death, death on the cross, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and tongue confess on, under, and above the earth that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, here's the, here's the gospel. Jesus holding life in his hand, me holding death in mine, Jesus from across the gap said, I want to make a trade with you. I want to come 
and experience the traitor's murder you deserved. And I want you to have the eternal life that I've earned. This should only cause us all to go, why would you do that? It's because you are so deeply loved. And when you've got kids, you get it. You just go, of course. I'll do anything for you. I know some of you don't, you may, maybe you don't have a great example of a dad in your life, and I'm so sorry. It's just like the, the sin and the fall has cost us so much. And so for some of us, the idea of God being father is just foreign to us. But let me tell you something. A, God who, a, a father who loves and loves well looks at this trade and says, you have no clue how much I love you. Of course I would take your place. And, then, and, and, and in the original Greek, this is supposed to be in all caps. It says, Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is it so important that he experienced death on a cross? Because it's the death of a traitor. Do you know what I am? Do you know what you are? A traitor. Why did you just have to be crucified? Because as a traitor, I deserve to be crucified. That's why. That's the only way that God could maintain his justice. He has to punish someone for what you've done. He can't just go, you know what, I'm going to let this one go. Because then he wouldn't be just. He says, I've I have to pour out my wrath on sin. That's the only way to maintain my justice. And Jesus steps into the spot where you and I deserve to be. And God on the cross, it says, pours out his full wrath on Jesus. So much so that Jesus actually experiences the forsakenness that you and I deserved in hell even. Jesus on the cross says in, the, in his original language, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross experiences the forsakenness of his father. Do you want to know why? Because you and I deserve to be forsaken by the father. He was simply carrying out the sentence that was levied on you and me. When you, were in a, when you and I were standing trial, the sentence came down at a price much too high for us to pay, and the wages of sin was death. And then Jesus stands up and walks across the courtroom, and he says, I'd like to switch places with you because of my great love for you. And this is the gospel. It's Jesus extending his perfection to you, saying, would you like to make a trade with me? So how do we do that? We're going to end here in Romans chapter 10. There is a God. We have fallen short. It's cost us hell. But God gave us a free gift. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And you might be saying, well, then, Jesus, how do I obtain that salvation? I want it. I want to make the trade. Here's what Paul writes, Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two parts to that, and both are very important, and one gets overlooked commonly. This isn't Paul saying two things that are exactly the same back to back. He's not using synonymous phrases and just repeating himself. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are two things. Number one is called lordship. Lordship comes on the heels of this newfound salvation. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you get how much I love you and how much I gave to you, you would surrender your life fully and say, from here on out, God, I live for you. It's called lordship. Lord is just another word for king. 
that when we, when we submit to Jesus and surrender our life, we then say, God, you sit on the throne of my life now. You make my decisions. I live for you. Now, are you going to blow it every single day? Yes, friend, because on this side of heaven, we are still wrapped in our mortal coil. But instead of our sin sticking to us like it used to when we were depraved and caught in our sin, it now washes off because Jesus has pe- paid the penalty, not just for the sin you've already committed, for the sins you're committing, for the sins that you will commit. The cross took away all of it. We are, as Martin Luther pens, we are simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously then saint and sinner. When we surrender our life to Jesus, we still mess up. But when God sees us, he doesn't see us anymore. This is the beauty of heaven. When you get to the gates of heaven, you don't stand trial. Because if you did, God would go, you're a dumpster fire. Sinful, broken, adultery, lies, cheating, stealing, murdering, genocidal, bigot, racist, hatred. That's who you are. We would never pass. The gospel says that on the day where I meet God face to face, Jesus pushes me back and stands in front of me. And God the Father judges Jesus' perfection, and then I get his ticket in. God looks at Jesus Christ. Remember I said the guest list to name to the heaven is only one name long and it's not yours? How are you going to get in? Because when I get to heaven and God goes, why should I let you in? I'm going to go, you shouldn't. You should let him in. And because of his loving kindness, he has given me permission, clothed in his righteousness, wrapped in his love, to experience the life that he's earned for me. I don't deserve this. But the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord now, you're the king, you're in charge, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, that means that you declare with your mouth that you are Lord, but you also believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he paid the penalty for your sin. And he made a big claim. He said, I am God, and I've taken your sin to the grave, and it will never come back. And I have the power, Jesus said, to make dead things live again. And for three days, everyone sat and went, that was a big ticket that guy wrote. (laughs) This guy claims to be God. He claims to have the power to make dead things live again. And after three days on the third morning, Jesus gets up out of the grave and walks out, and he says, the check cleared. I have the power to make dead things live again. And so the two-part response to the gospel is to say, God, you are God of my life. I'm no longer God of my life. And I believe that when you died on the cross, you took away my sin. And your resurrection shows me that I will live again with you forever. That's, that's your response. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. For those, those of you who are still dead in your sin, what I mean by that is you've never given your life to Jesus. I know a lot of you have, okay? A lot of you are Christians that are here. You go to church regularly. You understand the gospel. You've had a moment in your life where you've stood in front and you, or you've, you've confessed even in the, the darkness of your room in your house and you've said, Jesus, I surrender everything to you. I want to live for you and I know I'm going to mess up but I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I give you everything. And a lot of you have done that. But some of you may have come to camp and not understood it. Some of you have come to camp as the pharisaical brother who sits in every week after week and you have a hate in your heart towards people just like Jonah did that are, that are not as good as you morally, but you actually worship yourself because you think you're so morally pure that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus because what would there be to surrender? You're perfect. And God's gotten a hold of your heart this weekend and said, friend, you need me as much as they do. And you need to repent of your sin too. 
and turn back to God. And, and so if you find yourself in one of those two categories, but it's just one to say, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and made that declaration, God, I surrender my life to you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you have saved me even in this moment. And I give you everything. I'm going to pray. And on the end of that prayer, if, again, for the first time, you want to surrender your life to Jesus, and Romans 10, 9 through 10, that wants, that's your story now. You want to give your life over to Jesus and declare that he is Lord of your life. After I pray, I want you to pray that along with me. And then when I'm done, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm not asking you to stand up because like, I get some kind of bonus points in heaven. I'm asking you to stand up because Paul seems to indicate in Romans chapter 10 that it's important for us to make a declaration of our faith. That's it's important why we talk about baptism too. And friend, I'm telling you what, if you're too nervous to stand in front of a room of mainly Christians, in front of a guy who's a Christian, and a sound booth of people who are Christians, and counselors who are Christians, like if you can't stand here, where are you going to stand? In culture? In your classrooms? <laughs> On your sports team? You got to be honest with yourselves, as adults. This life's not easy. I hope you've understood that from my testimony this weekend. It's not like everything gets better. In fact, it gets a lot harder, because you have a target on your chest now. But in boldness and in courage, having understood the gospel, I'm going to ask you to give a response. Some of you will be no. Some it will be not yet. But some of you who have never made that decision tonight want to say, I commit, and I'm going to follow Jesus as a disciple of his. Would you pray with me? Jesus, for those of us who have never given our life over to you, we've never made that trade, we've never given you our sin, we've never even confessed our sin, and we've never accepted your work on our behalf on the cross that saves us. When you stepped down from heaven and put on flesh and you lived a perfect life and then died in my place. God, if we've never given our life to you and we want to, would you receive this prayer right now? In your hearts, if that's you, just repeat after me. In your hearts, not out loud. Hey God, I... Uh, I know that I've lived my whole life sinning against you, and, I'm, and it's worse every day. I've followed worthless idols. I've chased things that don't matter. I've ridiculed you in my posture, in my actions, and things that I've done, and the things that I've left undone. I've committed treason against you. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. I want to repent of those things. I want to turn away from those things, and I want you to be God of my life. I want you to be the king. And I believe, Jesus, that when you died on the cross, that you took away my sin, and that when you came back from the dead, you showed that you have the power to make dead things live. And God, I bet my life on that truth. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me your grace? Would you give me your righteousness? Would you give me your perfection in place of my brokenness? I give my life to you tonight. So let me pray. Amen. If for the first time you said that prayer along with me, committing your life to Christ. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. So here's what we're going to do. This chapel is going to remain open 
for you to do business with God according to as you need. I'm going to ask that if you stood up, that you just stay behind. Nothing weird is going to happen. It's just that as counselors, we want to be able to ask you the question, hey, what's going on? What can I pray with you for? Why did you stand? What does this mean to you? Because we want, you, you're part of a new family now. That's what Romans 8 says. Those who give their life over to Jesus are now welcomed into the family where they can call out to God, the king of the universe, and call him Abba, Father. For you've been adopted now as son. You've been adopted now as daughter. I'm going to ask the rest of you, if you still want to just stay behind, maybe ask a question or two, or think about something, or pray about something, or, 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 or just talk to a counselor, you have the freedom. This chapel is going to be open to you as well. And for the rest of you, maybe you're like, you know, I... I think this is awesome. I'm not there right now, or I've been there before, and I'm, man, I'm, I'm happy to pray for these people, but I don't really feel like I have anything pressing on my heart to talk to God about. I'm going to ask everyone else who doesn't stay behind, if you'd please leave in a discipline of silence here in a minute, just to respect the people who have stayed behind, who want to be able to continue their focus and to have great conversations. So right now, here's what I'm asking you to do. If you stood up or if you want to stay behind and do some business with God, I want you to go ahead and stay where you are. If not, in a discipline of silence, staying quiet, would the rest of you please head out the back? Thank you so much for your respect.